This is Apotheosis, the second podcast from the crew at Code Punk, where we talk about cyberspace, cyberculture, and cyberpunk. You can go to codepunk.io to read our articles and also check out our other podcast, the self-titled Code Punk Podcast, hosted by myself and co-host Bill Ahern. You can also find that podcast in your favorite podcast application, as well as on YouTube, since all recent episodes are recorded in virtual reality. I'm going to do something different with this apotheosis entry. Recently, I picked up a few books on cyberpunk, and once again, Max Hedrum found his way into the conversation. So I thought it would be fun to do a readout of the Max Hedrum essay I wrote a while back. Typically with apotheosis, I post the written monologue to CodePunk with an audio control to listen to the equivalent podcast episode. With this one, only the preamble in this will be on the corresponding post. The essay is actually an earlier post from CodePunk, but I'll, I'll link to it. For those that have followed the whole story, Bill started to get reacquainted with Max Hedrum a few years back, which inspired us to do an episode of Code Punk about Max Hedrum, talking about the original British television movie. From there, I did a Bots and Beer newsletter back when I had that newsletter running, and, and that was all about Max Hedrum as well. And both of them were used for resources for a presentation that I did at the virtual cyberpunk culture conference. The video can still be found online. This is where I took a long look at Max Hedrum and 80s culture, the culmination of all of those things, ended with a long-form essay on Code Punk, expanding upon the points brought up in the conference talk. That essay is what I'm going to read in the podcast equivalent of this entry, so what you're listening to now. Uh, for those that don't feel like listening to the episode, you're more than welcome to read the original essay. Again, it is on the Code Punk website, and I will link to it in this preamble. Now, modern culture siphons value from past generations in order to prepackage quantity for quick financial extraction. The result of this is the rating of authenticity from past generations into some sort of memified version of itself. Much of the modern generation seems to live off of memes, YouTube video clips, and recycled collage advertisements that fake nostalgia a bit. Those are part of this modern generation might recognize Max Hedrum as a goofy head in a television box with an annoying stutter and bad fashion sense, but the reality is much darker, dystopian, and subversive. And it's a perfect reflection of the youth movement of the 80s, coupled with the emerging niche literature of that time. As odds would have it, there was a small group of individuals circulating online that remember and revere the oddities and cultural experimentation of Max Hedrum. Conversational artificial intelligence pioneer Ben Brown, creator of BotKit and current Microsoft employee, counts himself among this group. Artist and technologist Bill Ahern, of course my Code Punk co-editor and Code Punk podcast co-host, is another. In fact, it was Bill's interest in producing a Max Hedrum episode for the Code Punk podcast that inspired and spawned several recent media pieces on the character and the character's relationship to culture. Max Hedrum himself was a highly experimental creation that blended music, artificial intelligence, and cyberpunk, and the end result was much more subversive than most remember thanks to new Coke commercials perverting these perceptions. The truth is that the original Max Hedrum pilot was less than an hour of grainy, made-for-TV goodness meant to launch Max as a video DJ for a UK music video show. You can even find episodes of it on YouTube. 
In addition, there were Easter eggs littered throughout the TV movie that lent credence to Max Geek credentials, or at least showed you that the writers were true cultural insiders. For example, the network on the show is Network 23, a number with well-known counterculture and modern occult significance known as the 23 Enigma. In particular, the number 23 has great significance with the pseudo-religion Discordia and plays an important role in the works of counterculture elite Robert Anton Wilson. Wilson himself acknowledges that his first exposure to the strangest of 23 came from a conversation with author William S. Burroughs. This number has continued to carry significance into the modern era through chaos magic and genre writers like Grant Morrison, for example, in his Invisibles comic book series. Another good example of solid geekery is the number of the apartment in the raid at the very beginning, 42. This is clearly a reference to Douglas Adams in his Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where 42 is the answer to the meaning of life. 42 also has significance in the works of author Lewis Carroll and others. Quality entertainment and red herrings aside, from the beginning, Max Hedrum 20 Minutes into the Future had its geek credentials in order and gave us a glimpse of a dystopian future where people are treated as nothing more than data, media dominates the landscape, and society is manipulated for corporate gain a traditional cyberpunk dystopia that resides a little too close to home. Protagonist Edison Carter discovers that the massive media conglomerate that he's working for is using a new form of subliminal messaging to sell advertising that has resulted in fatal consequences. Carter, being chased through the building, attempts to escape a parking garage on a motorcycle, but hits his head as the villainous child genius of the company manipulates a platform lift. What does he hit his head on? A low-clearance sign with the words, Max Headroom, 2.3 meters. The company, however, doesn't want Carter to disappear, so the aforementioned boy genius constructs a virtual version to fool audiences. The experiment is a failure, and both Carter and his digital version are sent off to be disposed. Lucky for them, the goons disposing of them do the typical goon thing and try to sell them each for money. Digital Carter, constantly repeating Max Hedrum, is sold to a pirate television station, while organic Carter is sold for organ donation. Long story short, Carter awakens, defeats the villains, and exposes the leadership of the company, which brings down a few individuals, but as with any true dystopia, the network itself remains ever vigilant and intact. Meanwhile, Digital Carter has been christened Max Hedrum by the pirate radio station, whose proprietors work with him to slowly bring through some form of humanity. He's given his own show, and they ride off into the sunset, setting up Max's video DJ gig in the real world. Despite the counterculture influence... 20 Minutes Into the Future is still a television movie, and it was specifically designed to introduce and spin off a video disc jockey. In the movie, Max Hedrum eventually escapes into the data stream with a couple of cyberpunk music heads running a pirate radio station. The implication being that even though the free love of the 70s hippie era left us short of truly being free, the cyberpunks now controlled cyberspace, and a new subversive music that 80s era parents hated would be a shots of Jaeger for the soul of the cyberpunk youth. Why a video disc jockey? When MTV began, it started with images of the Apollo moon landing, ideas of the future of humanity, playing to rock music. The first music video was Video Killed the Radio Star, Humanity transitioning through technology. MTV drove sales of albums that weren't getting radio play, altering the landscape of music and culture. As rock music transitioned in the 80s, MTV was there. MTV allowed for the 80s pop experimental to rise as a paradigm of futuristic philosophy, one-hit wonders, and commentary on the very consumerism the era was pushing. During the 90s, it was a place to find alternative music that wasn't widely popular in car radios. Would Nirvana and the grunge movement of teenage angst ever have been a thing without the video for Smells Like Teen Spirit? MTV video disc jockeys, referred to as VJs, weren't television personalities like the latter-day Carson Daly. Kurt 
Kurt Loder was a Rolling Stones journalist before joining the company. Kennedy went on to become a host of several Fox broadcasting shows. Both Loder and Kennedy described themselves as libertarian, but much more to the left libertarian tradition of the original computer underground. Kennedy, a Nixon evangelist, leaned hard right but eventually softened up her social conservatism, even officiating a gay wedding of friends. Kennedy's politics might be most famous for chanting Nixon now during an MTV event for the Clintons. But remember... This was during a time when young people were highly skeptical of government in general, regardless of their political affiliation. What about Tabitha Soren, a 19-year-old? She was in the Beastie Boys video about fighting against the oppression of your parents in order to live freely. Fight for your right to party. She then embarked on an MTV career introducing teenagers and young adults to the importance of politics and voting, interviewing presidents, leaders, important political figures, and winning awards along the way. Even the most commercialized personality at the time, downtown Julie Brown, had a sizable impact on culture as a mixed-race UK importer turned an on-air mistake into a catchphrase. This is a company that launched Pauly Shore into the stratosphere by cultivating his surfer bro party alter ego during a time when America was transitioning out of the experimental 80s, forgetting its Vietnam War sins, and was entering into economic recovery. Shore was also a performance comedian whose parents owned a comedy store where he opened for Sam Kinison. Not exactly commercial, although he clearly cultivated his image in that direction. MTV in the 80s and early 90s was a pioneer of the counterculture, spinning audiovisual pleasures that put pictures to the subversive music you previously only heard on vinyl. Today, MTV is a pale shell of what once powered the collective subversive mindshare of America's youth. MTV was a microcosm of a larger cultural transition that played out as the 70s counterculture disintegrated, leaving the remnants to wrestle with empowerment through knowledge versus empowerment through consumerism. In order to understand this, we have to take a look at the geopolitical shifts that have shaped the previous 30 to 40 years. We can fundamentally trace the development of regional and national cultural shifts by arbitrarily looking at slices of decades. The 70s counterculture movement was active in anti-war protests, hallucinogenics, and communal activities, and encompassed most of what we consider a hippie generation. When we turn the corner to the 80s, consumerism was high on the list of societal rites of passage, while the counterculture morphed into an exploration of cyber culture as machines of loving grace captivated the counterculture pioneers. This was a new frontier connecting internal explorations with external components. The 90s, meanwhile, entrenched us in the consumer culture, as Reaganomics and consumer-driven economies took full control through an obsession with GDP. This saw the escalation of neoliberalism, as well as the emergence of peripheral subgenres. For the 2000s, I was at a loss for an appropriate title, but Joe Matheny helped me by labeling this the blank generation, a blank culture where subgenres were mostly test audiences created for consumption by corporations for maximum financial extraction. This corporatism embraced a formulaic media approach, attempting to carbon copy and bottle even the slightest smell of a dollar bill. Of course, various cultures indeed span across decades. Much like generations of people, these generational cultures are fluid throughout these time periods and not static within a specific decade. But the important consideration is the recognition of how progressive and expansive cultural explorations hit a brick wall of regressive thought that transformed most of what was great about counterculture movements into a maximization of financial extraction for corporate shareholders. The 80s was the battleground. 
Although the transition from counterculture into cyberculture upheld some of the left libertarian ideology of the mystic 60s and 70s, the geopolitics of the 80s ushered in a new focus on economy, consumption, and wealth. This impacted all walks of life in the 80s, but it played out on the smaller stage as software developers began facing the dilemma of free software versus commercial software, spurned on by Bill Gates' founding of Microsoft and willingness to attack software sharing through legal means. Many of the California computer pioneers, hobbyists, and hackers held on to left libertarian ideology. With the advocacy of Timothy Leary, we moved from the psychedelic drugs to computers as the next level of experience. Stuart Brand took the Whole Earth catalog online as the well, exploring virtual systems and creating software was a form of collective social empowerment. The computer was meant to set the individual free and open a new frontier of exploration and empowerment. But they were slowly becoming the minority as culture as a whole was moving towards consumerism and corporatism. If Alan Moore's Watchmen was a look into how the world would have been shaped with a continued influence from Richard Nixon, cyberpunk is an examination of what would happen if the conservative principles of the 80s escalated to its natural conclusion. When Ronald Reagan was elected, he began championing supply-side economics, which became the platform for American conservatism, cutting taxes on the upper class, widening the gap between the rich and the poor, and ushering in the ability for corporations and shareholders to take advantage of a financially extractive economy. Despite the Clean Air and Clear and Water Acts, Reagan was also a champion of deregulation, and his reduction in government spending deprived investment in the public sector, including research and university funding. Reagan's war on drugs deeply impacted impoverished minorities and is still felt to this day. Reagan's foreign policy included interventions in the Middle East and a Cold War arms race that still resonates with the doomsday clock watchers of today. Across the Atlantic, Margaret Thatcher was also busy deregulating industries, opposing trade union power, and privatizing state-owned institutions. Her support of the poll tax was regressive and disproportionately affected impoverished individuals. She also began flirting with nationalist ideology as her skepticism of any European coalition grew. A shared opposition to communism drew Reagan and Thatcher together at a time when the promise of wealth and success through conservatism invigorated the Alex P. Keatons of the world, but the emergence of computers and the internet helped to keep a subculture alive that was against conservative interventionism. Even though government spending might have decreased, funding for the military increased and the Justice Department started to take an interest in online communities and so-called hackers. Cyberpunk literature and imaginings took supply-side worshipping and deregulation to its natural conclusion and gave birth to a world overwrought by corporations and consumerism. America essentially lost its soul with the Vietnam War, and when the hippie movement failed, the children of the counterculture generation embraced the wealth and power expressed by the Reagan 80s and Reaganomics. This generational split pitted boomer parents against Generation X children and launched an era of consumerism catalyzed by supply-side economics that increased the wealth gap. Supply-side economics, a global economy through trade deals, and the emergence of credit as a defining factor transitioned America from a maker economy into a consumer economy, but also shifted ideology to be more conservative. Family Ties is a good example of a television show that defined this generational gap, pitting Alex P. Keaton and his Reagan worship against his hippie parents. As liberal politicians worked to break the hold that Reagan had on the nation, they moved further to the right, embracing trade and corporatism, producing their own neoliberal agenda that was nearly indistinguishable from the Republican platform in terms of economic, financial, and business matters. Those that didn't fall into the Reagan trap took their counterculture principles or the principles of their parents and embraced niche areas of cultural and political ideas. Young Gen Xers became lost in a soulless 
consumer economy, but some found escape through subcultures emerging throughout the nation, including cyberpunk. Drew Austin has an excellent newsletter called The Kneeling Bus, and in one of his issues, he quotes Richard Meltzer on the notion that rock and roll had value until it was everywhere. This is the idea that scarcity breeds contemplation, which breeds catharsis. Radio made music readily available, but still on rotation. Want the song? Buy the album. As technology progressed and a tape deck emerged, you could record off the radio in lieu of buying a whole album. Nowadays, you can just buy songs individually or stream them whenever you want. Artists who painstakingly crafted everything from the music, the song order, the album cover art, the lyric sheets, and the videos that expanded the message they wanted to convey have been replaced by immediate single consumption. The crafted story is lost. Largely, this is the result of our financially extractive economy. Large corporations dominate the music and overall entertainment industry, looking to execute on the mythic algorithm to create the most viral pop song. The demand from shareholders is for financial growth, so corporations are looking to spend the least for the greatest return on investment. This is why the movie industry invests so heavily in sequels, and if not sequels, the movies follow a formulaic approach devoid of a soul. Music is no different, and all of the major music companies invest mostly in the formulaic pop music that rotates on the radio and YouTube. Originality is gone. Messaging, gone. The very emotional, cathartic, and transformative origins of music have been completely stripped out, eliminating the value of storytelling, leaving us with billboard charts of clones that can be converted to data, measured, and duplicated for financial growth. This is the very dystopian future that Max Hedrum implied. People as data. The subversiveness of music and music videos was the taste of the youth versus corporate battle of the 80s. But that ultimately fell once corporations found a way to absorb and commercialize the salient talking points of the musical counterculture. Once finished, they turned their attention to other genres and niche areas. And their conquest, unfortunately, it hasn't slowed. What Max Hedrum gave us was truly a look at 20 minutes into the future. Our future. Thank you.